Go to Second Timothy, chapter one. We'll get there in just a second. But uh, these songs today really set us up, I mean, perfectly um, for this third kind of installment in the series. You know, songs about <clears throat> the strength and security of God and His character and um, His faithfulness and authority. Because uh, really, like those things play a direct role in uh, how we like live and interact with each other. And so in a series about conflict resolution among, uh, among Christians, uh, that plays, just plays a direct role. Like it has everything to do with how we proceed as we kind of like butt heads together. And uh, so this is the, the third of the four uh, part series on conflict resolution, and um, if you've not been here for the previous ones, you know the podcasts are up, and I would just encourage you to to check that out because um, really we've been kind of building uh, and kind of headed in a direction. And um, you know, next week, as we finish uh, the series, will be a lot of practical stuff, and so the first week or two were some foundational things, and um, today we're going to talk about some of the some of like what contributes to us being very hesitant uh, as far as like confronting uh, those who have hurt us or those that we have have hurt somehow. Um, and by I know conf- like confront is such a harsh word for us. Like we all pretty much hate it. Even people who claim to love confrontation, they don't really love it. Uh, it's just kind of one of those like weird things. But confront is not a bad word. Confrontation biblically is really like, hey, let's be honest about what's going on here. That's really all all we're talking about. Um, And and I think that uh, it's important just to keep, for me to keep clarifying that a lot of what we're talking about is is when when conflict arises between two people who are in Christ, between two people who are Christians. um, When you're dealing with, with, if you're a Christian and you're a in conflict with someone who is not a Christian, uh, a lot of these things still apply, but obviously there are some differences, you know. And I'll address that a little bit next week. But for the for the most part, like uh, we've been talking about, like between two believers, how do we sort through the differences that we have? And um, you know, I think uh, it, it may not be fair to do this, but if you if you think of kind of a a, a spectrum of hurt and conflict, you know, you have there's like some of the things that are like just smaller between us, you know, um, I think the first week I used like if you have a roommate and they like never do the dishes, you know, there's like that kind of conflict that we have that that's really it. It is it seems silly when you compare it with the other end of the spectrum. Where we're talking about like um, abusive relationships, let's say. Um, and so you don't want to lump doing the dishes with abuse in the same kind of deal, you know, so I think we need to kind of space those out a little bit um, and recognize that when you have an extreme like abuse, some of this stuff is, is, that's a different kind of conflict resolution, you know, and so I'm not trying to push anyone into um, some sort of like unhealthy reconciliation type deal with someone who has abused you, Um, um, 
but, but I believe that there is some healing that, that the Lord will do through some of these same principles. So while it may not be good for you to like have a sit-down, face-to-face coffee with someone who has, who has abused you, there are some of these things that we're talking about that will bring healing in that situation. Um, but when you move a little bit toward the other end of the spectrum, from my roommate won't do the dishes, into conflict within marriage, you know, and like friend groups, where, where there really are legitimate things that are going on where, where we're, we're hurting one another. And sometimes it's on purpose. But a lot of times it's really, it isn't in a like sinister, evil kind of way. It's just, it's a part of living life together is that we clash sometimes, you know. Um, and so th- I definitely feel like roommates should be able to sit down and say, hey, why don't you do the dishes? But I also feel like a husband and wife should be able to sit down and say, hey, what, why... What's up with this? I'll just leave it open like that uh, and spare any examples, you know. But I feel like that should be able to happen. Or, or friends should be able to sit down and be like, why did you do this? Why did I confide in you about this? And then you told someone, you know. Or why did you say this about me? Or why didn't this happen? Or we talked about this. And So I, I think that, that what we're really moving toward is dialogue. That's what we're talking about is, is learning to think correctly, think theologically about what's going on. That was the first week. Um, and then last week, uh, as far as like preparing our hearts and minds for that conversation, just some things, making sure that we have the right perspective. Next week, it'll be the practicals of like, um, who makes the first move? How, do, what is that com- how does that conversation go? What does that look like? What should you say? What should you not say? All that, some order things, whatever. Today, it's like, okay, what, what keeps us from just being very honest with each other, right? What, what keeps us from saying like, hey, you hurt me, or... Um, or saying, like, I'm sorry that I hurt you, or saying, like, hey, things are weird. I don't really understand why. Can we talk about where, where things kind of went awry or whatever? And so I, I wrote some stuff down, and it won't be on the screen, um, but just kind of made a list from things that I have, I have thought in my mind, like just in my own personal journey, things that I've heard other people say uh, in uh, my many, many years of ministry, uh, and just, like, hearing people and their hesitations and fears and whatever, um, and things that I have heard uh, from having, like, from processing a lot of this whole series with the elders and staff and interns and other people just kind of bouncing things off um, or whatever, I kind of compiled, a, like, a list of things that I guess um, make us very hesitant to confront someone. Um, so I'm just going to rattle some of these off to kind of just begin to address them. And then I'm going to put them in two big categories and then kind of attack it that way. So uh, here's some of the things that keep us from confronting uh, a painful situation. From the perspective of, it, if you are the one who has been hurt, okay, so you're on the receiving end of some sort of painful you know, exchange, these are some of the things that, that are out there. Um, sometimes we think that the person who hurt us, that they owe it to us to make the first move. And that's what, that's what keeps that conversation from happening is like, like, he knows what he did. She knows what she said. She, they know what happened. They're grown-ups. They should be able to come to me. Um, that's an, that's an, a, an expectation that we're putting on someone else. And uh, they're not meeting our expectations. And so we just kind of sit there with our arms crossed sometimes saying, I'm not, it, it ain't on me. It's on them. And they know. And so they owe it to me to make the first move. Uh, sometimes that is what's going on. Sometimes... Um, it's about like not wanting to return to an unhealthy relationship in the first place. You know? So you don't pursue 
uh, reconciliation with that person because you're like, I don't want it to go back to the way it was. That was ridiculous. So you kind of you remain in your hurt and wounded state because you know something needs to happen, but you don't want to just go back to the way it was. Uh, so you just kind of just wait. And that kind of makes you hesitant because all you know is how things have been, and that's not what you want. Um, another one is that somehow, like, reconciliation and forgiveness, like, in your mind, it'll justify their actions, and in a roundabout way say, it's almost like you're saying, what you did to me, it's okay, you know. What you've said about me, how you betrayed me, how this, whatever, it's, it's really not that big a deal. It, oh, shucks, let's hug it out and move on. And when you're hurt, that's not, that's not the perspective that you want. Like, you don't want to do something that's going to send that sort of message. And so sometimes you just kind of hold back um, because you think that that's what reconciliation and forgiveness means. Um, and then the fourth one I wrote down is this. A lot of people are just, they're afraid of their own reactions in confronting someone who's hurt them. You know, you're like, I'm just, I'm afraid to open that vault because I might just go crazy. Um, when you're hurt, like I referenced last week, we're, we have to recognize that, that we're wounded. And you know, I told a story about the, like I, I hit this deer and she didn't really die or whatever. And my brother was like, let's make sure we keep our distance from this wounded wild animal. You know, uh, I'm not saying that if you are hurt, I'm not trying to compare you to a wounded deer in a ditch, but you're kind of like a wounded deer in a ditch. <laughs> like you have to see yourself that way. And sometimes... That's the very thing that keeps you hesitant is like, look, I don't know what I might do. So why would I set up that conversation when I'm probably going to make things a whole lot worse? Um, and some of that points back to last week. And like, yeah, you need, to, you need to process through this and prepare yourself for it. But um, being unwilling to do that sometimes for those who have been hurt, it kinda, those are some of the like, broad categories of things that kind of make us hesitant. Um, if you're on the other side of the situation where you've, you hurt someone else and you know, you know it, you know, um, there are plenty of times when we hurt somebody and we, we're completely clueless, like you don't even realize it. But a lot of times you know. You know? And so uh, let's say that you're dealing with that conviction and you're like, man, I shouldn't have done this. That was ridiculous or whatever. You, you just, just kind of know. Um, some of the things that hold us back when we are the... We're the guilty party, so to speak. Um, sometimes it's we just like, we're afraid, or we just refuse to admit we were wrong. Like it just grates on your nerves to have to like confess that and admit that, and um, that's just our pride. That's that's still you know our pride is it's it's wounded, right? Our flesh is the Bible says our flesh has been crucified. But it's not totally dead, you know. Um, and so, like, your, like our pride, it's still there. And hopefully it's weakening over time the more we deprive it. But there's something about conflict that just it puffs us up a little bit, you know. And there's something about the, even just the thought of having to admit that you were wrong. You just, oh, man, we rage against it. Uh, and so sometimes that's the very thing that keeps you, keeps you back. Um, another one, when you're, the, when you're the one who's hurt somebody else... Uh, you just want to avoid like any uncomfortable situation at any cost. Like it just doesn't matter. Like you don't want to be uncomfortable um, and have to have that awkward exchange with someone 
Um, so it's just, you're just like, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to avoid all this. I'm going to avoid thinking about it. I'm going to avoid praying about it. I'm going to avoid everything about it because I'm just uncomfortable. It makes me, it just, uh, it's just too whatever. And so you don't even want to think about what you've done to someone else because at all costs you avoid what makes you uncomfortable. Um, and the, the third, a third thing is it's just easier too. It's so much easier to just avoid it. Just put it off or pretend like, pretend like it didn't happen or pretend like things aren't weird or whatever and you just kind of like move on. Um, especially guys are real good about this. You kind of put it in its little compartment and put the lid on it and then hopefully never return to it. You know, It's just easier that way. Um, a fourth thing, uh, it forces, like conflict resolution forces us to address our approval issues with each other. Yeah. So if you, if you go to someone and you have to say, like, I did this, it was wrong. You're coming face to face with the fact that someone doesn't like you. Someone doesn't think very highly of you. And you've lost the ability to control uh, their perception of you. Which is something that, that all of us are, we're recovering approval addicts. All of us. Some have, have been in recovery longer than others, but... We just kind of we're kind of wired up that way. We're always trying to manage, make sure everybody thinks certain things about us. And when when we lose the ability to control that, we kind of flip out sometimes. And so, who? I mean, what greater example of someone you can't control their approval of you than someone that you have hurt? And if that conversation forces you to come face to face with the fact that that they think poorly of you, and there's not a thing you can do about it, and you made it happen. And so it's easier to just kind of push away from that and resist that because we don't like to admit that someone doesn't like us, especially when it's our own fault. Um, and a fifth thing is that you're afraid of their reaction. You know? So they're afraid of, you, of their own reaction, and you're afraid of their reaction too because what if you go and you, go and you apologize and confront it and whatever, and they just completely go crazy at you? Um, I mean, who wants that, right? So you just kind of stay away from it. And so both sides are, are, are hesitant. We have these, these things that are making us hold back. Um, and a couple of things that could really be on either side of it. Uh, maybe you don't know what to say or how to say it. You know, so you're like, oh, I'm not opposed to having that conversation, but how do you start that? Like, what do you, yeah, uh, you know, that'll be next week, so come back next week. That, that is a hesitation. Um, Sometimes the fact that you're in conflict with someone doesn't really hinder your life in any way. Like it really doesn't impact you. You're like, I can just ignore them, or I just avoid them, or I just don't think about it, or whatever. And so from your, from your perspective, you're like, my life is not deficient in some way because I'm in conflict with this person. I'm, I'm, I'm Gucci, as my uh, cashier told me the other day somewhere. I was like, uh, I said something about, I was like three cents over, I was like, I don't have three pennies. She's like, we Gucci? And I was like, (laughs) Urban Dictionary, what does that mean? Apparently that means like we're good. So so maybe you're Gucci, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, But I think think sometimes that that is the perspective. It's like you don't really see where it's, it it ain't messing with me that much. Um, The third one, you really just don't like them that much anyway. So, what's the point? You know, like you, if it was someone that you were like buddies with and someone you desired to be friends with, that'd be fine. But if you're just like, I don't care about, I don't care about this person, whatever. 
So if you don't like them, that becomes a reason to kind of be hesitant. Um, and here's one more. And this, this uh, probably, uh, in a situation where there's been some sort of conflict and it's gone unresolved, there tends to be a little bit of like a ping-pong back and forth of hurts. And then a lot of times it gets to the point where like both parties are in a place of, like, of saying the other person is wrong. You know, you're saying like, I mean, I did some stuff, but they're really wrong. And so you're both pointing the finger at each other, and you're kind of at an impasse. You know, it's like, how do you, what, what do you do? You know, it's like we both have our guns drawn at each other, and we're just kind of waiting. And you kind of are like, well, I can just kind of wait this out, I guess. Um, all these things are like, for me, like when I made this list, and especially the ones on that I've personally like. It's been my personal perspective on stuff. It's so dumb when you start to hear it that way or think about it that way. But what what usually takes something that should be stupid, you know, and just kind of silly and makes it um, very legitimate to us is the like emotional uh, like connection that we have to these to what's going on, you know. So yeah, on paper it can be silly, and for someone else it can be silly, but for you, you're so emotionally stirred up about it that it's completely legitimate, you know. That any one of these things, you'd be like, amen, absolutely, you know. Um, and that's, that's a kind of a tough part of conflict resolution, really, is that our emotions just play, they just play the wrong role, you know. Um, we are very much guilty, uh, just as humans, this is a part of our recovery from sin, um, but we're just very guilty of letting our emotions be like the lead dog in almost everything that we do. And they weren't designed that way. Like our emotions are good, and Jesus has redeemed them, and he is redeeming them. Uh, they're not bad, they're just not, they're not ultimate, you know. Like they don't, they don't determine things. But when someone has come against you or you're butting heads with somebody or whatever, it feels so, it just feels so painful or so aggravating or so whatever that we tend to like kind of listen to our emotions a bit much. And so you can really, I think you can take all those things that I was talking about and in addition to the, the previous two weeks, some foundational things, then you can put stuff into, into two categories. And um, they, I, the first one is, is just fears. And the second one is, is a misunderstanding of forgiveness. That when we're letting fear dominate, a lot of those things I just rattled off are, are the case. And then when we don't understand forgiveness, our conclusion uh, kind of points to a lot of those things too. So we're going we're gonna to look at both of those. So look at, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is one of those texts that uh, we've used a lot here at the ring, especially in community groups, and uh, it just really highlights like a deep, legitimate friendship between Paul and Timothy. Um, it points to discipleship. We just learn a lot about this connection that's there, um, and and so it's somewhat familiar if you've kind of been around for a while. Um, but a lot of times we don't look as much at the, the end of it. So look at verse 6. So he's basically been talking about, like, I see, I see God at work in you. Um, I, I see all these things. We've shared life together. I've discipled you. I've mentored you. 
Um, he's just, there's just a lot of goodness in the previous couple of verses. And in verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It says, fan, you need to fan into flame what God has done in you. You know, and so it's like a like a fire, like like when you if you're trying to get a fire going or trying to stoke a fire, uh, you just put oxygen on it, right? I mean, you literally like find something to make a fan out of it, and you like make a fan, and the oxygen goes on, and that's just it's how it works. It's science, you know. And so um, he's saying that you need to you need to take that principle and apply it to what God has done in you, and how He has gifted you, and how He has begun something in you, and um, so he's trying to in- encourage him, and he's he's just picks these these things to say this is this is what God has given you. He's not given you fear. It's not a, the spirit of fear that's in us is not of God. What is of God is power and love and self control. Not fear, but power, love, self control. So in anything with conflict resolution that that can be categorized as fears, you know. Fears of their reaction, fear of not knowing what to say, fear of uh, confronting your approval you know, issues, fear of what happens next, fear of not knowing this, not knowing this, not knowing this, what if this, what if that, you know, blah, blah, blah. All the things that we come up with that we're basically just afraid of that conversation. We're afraid of like that, like eyeball to eyeball, hey, we need to talk about this. We're afraid of that, of what's going to happen, we're not only afraid of that moment, we're afraid of what happens after that. Because it kind of becomes this like, uh, kind of thing where like, well, it could go this way, or it could go this way, or it could go this way, or it could go this way. And we're so gifted at playing out every horrible scenario. You know? We're really, really, it's kind of amazing all the things we can come up with that could happen. Um, and then there's always like that one, or it could be really awesome, or it could be 50 ways of horrible, you know? Um, we're so afraid of all that unknown that we're kind of at bay. And so Paul is telling Timothy, who has all kind of fears already. He's young. He's a leader in the church, which young people like, were not really received. Like, um, seniority just went a long way in this day, and it kind of does in ours too. And so he was young. He was in church leadership. And he didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, there's no mention of his father in any of the genealogy stuff that comes in the previous couple of verses. And so he doesn't really have a father figure. Paul is his father figure, and Paul is facing like imprisonment and death. And may not, they may not be around each other again, so his mentor is gone. Um, he, he's just in this place where he has all these things he could be afraid of. He has health issues. There's all this stuff going on. And Paul's saying, hey, all your fears, that stuff is not from God. You need to know that. I think we could take that out of that text to bring it into our own lives and say, hey, all the things you're afraid about in having a conversation with someone who's hurt you or you've hurt them or however it needs to work, and everything that comes after that, everything you're afraid of, none of that is coming from Christ in you, the hope of glory. None of it. None of it. So what is coming from Christ in you, the hope of glory? Well, according to verse 8, power, love, self-control. Now think about how that applies to conflict resolution. Power, all right? Not just like, like, you know, power, power, right? Not like, um, 
dig deep and try harder, or you can do it, you know, like you're the best, or whatever. Not that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like speaking the universe into creation out of nothing kind of power. Like raise Jesus from the dead kind of power. Like put all the sins of humanity onto Christ and absorb the wrath of God kind of power. Like that kind of power. Where he can say, Grand Canyon, and there's the Grand Canyon. He can also say, your sins are forgiven no matter what you've done. You're totally, you're totally good. He just speaks it into, into existence, that kind of stuff. That is the spirit that God has given you and me in Christ. So why would we ever feel any sort of fear going into some sort of conversation? Well, it's because we're, we're not thinking correctly about it. And we need to think correctly about it. That you have everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of Him who's called you to His own glory and excellence. And so when you go into that conversation and you're preparing yourself for that and whatever, whatever unknown and whatever, all that kind of stuff, you are completely empowered by Jesus, by the vine. He's the trunk of the tree. You're the branch. The branch has everything it needs. And at no point does the branch look at the trunk and say, you're not giving me enough. Never, ever, ever. So it's not just power, it's divine power. So your little conversation with someone, no big deal, right? When you think about it like that, no big deal. When you focus on all your terrors, then yeah, it's a huge deal. When you focus on him as your vine, it's fine. That's, that's who you really are. God has given us the spirit of power, the second one of love, this might be, the, this might be the, the hardest one, especially when there's a lot of pain that's gone back and forth. That word, word love in the Greek is agape. So it's not, it's not saying like he's giving you a spirit of brotherly love. He's giving you a spirit of divine, heavenly, self-sacrificial love. Like the way that Christ loves the church, that is the love that you have for someone else. And you know, sometimes I, I think that we're, that we think of it as like, oh, that's a love I should have for someone else. But the Bible says, no, that's the love that you do have for someone else. Like it's, it's there, it's who you are. You don't have to muster it up, you know, you don't have to dig deep and try to love them. Like, no, you do love them because Christ in you loves Christ in them. That's how it works. But, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's similar to, you know, like I've said this before, one of my pet peeves about worship services is, is like when, when some, someone who's leading something is like begging the Spirit to show up, you know. God won't show up unless we invite Him. Let's invite Him. It's like, bull. You're saying God's not here? Like we've created this, the one place in the universe where God is not present. And He can't even get in unless we're like, okay, come on, you know, Please. No, he's already here. We just have to get a clue. It's the same way with agape love. It's the same way with your love for that person. You love them because Christ in you, the hope of glory, loves them. You just got to get a clue. You have to relax. That love that is self-sacrificing, that, that acts on their good, it's there. You may not feel it emotionally, you may scoff at what I'm saying right now, but it's, it's there because He's there. And that's what He's given you. 
So do you have the the empowerment to have that conversation and for whichever direction it goes for it to be okay? Yes. Do you have the the real deal love for them? Yes. And I think it's really interesting to think about this and that you you don't have to have brotherly love for them necessarily. You don't have to go back to being like friends that hang out all the time with someone. That's not the goal. The goal is agape love for them. It's self-sacrificial love. It's whatever, like I really, I will, I want your good and I'm willing to act in whatever way that is. It's that kind of love. So power is there. Love is there. The third part of verse 8, self-control. You're like, oh, that's mine. That's the one right there. That's the one I'm worried about. It's like, no, that's, that's in you. That can be translated self-control. It can be translated sound mind or sound doctrine. There's an integrity that's there. There's a, there's a, a rightness that's there. It's saying like, yeah, he can empower you for that conversation and you can have the, like the real, like the important kind of love for them. But also, like, you can hold it together. You can articulate what's wrong. You can listen to them. You can confess that you were, like it was your bad, you know. You can handle whatever their reaction is. It's okay. So they may just explode right in front of you. They may attack you, and it may just be just terrible, but you'll, you'll be okay. Because Christ in you is the most, I mean, there's no one more self-controlled than Christ. So, Anything that we're fearful of, anything that we're fearful of, should be trumped by the divine power and agape love and, and sound doctrine, self-control, sound mind, like the rightness and wholeness and integrity that God has given us in Christ. Like that should outweigh those fears. And you know what? what's important, I think, to remember is it's not saying that you should not be concerned about those things. And not, and not to say that, that even, like, it, I think it's okay to be a little fearful, you know? Like, that's, it's okay to admit that. I believe that Jesus was fearful and concerned. I mean, he was anxious and sweating blood in the garden before being crucified. I, I think that's a part of life. But in conflict resolution, we, we actively say, I'm afraid, but greater than my fears is Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's greater. So what's going to lead? You know, Your emotional fears or the truth of who Jesus is. And that's where, that's where we find ourselves in conflict resolution is making a choice. Um, there's a, a thing, uh, Jesse, if you put this up on the screen, there's this progression that happens. Um, and and uh, this was like one of those seminary things where uh, I had to go dig my notes out to find it. But there is this progression that happens when we're hurt. Or there's anger, and then you get bitter, and then malice. You know, that, that's, that's when you begin to like really will them to suffer and hurt, like Stop just being like, I'm mad and I'm kind of bitter and hardened and now it's like, I kind of want them to pay for it. 
then wrath is when they really do, like you make them pay for it. There's action there um, to kind of even the score. And then you just then you just sort of hate them. And then there's revenge, which is like, that's like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit them, and then I'm going to hit them again. You know, it's that, that kind of stuff. Then the etc. like that's, there's all kind of places that it goes from there. I mean, there are, there are, are folks who are, um, who are depressed because of this, uh, this like progression has worked its way through. Um, there's all kind of relational problems that happen. You begin to take it out on, on other people and there's just, it's just, it's just a mess and it, it just rolls through this progression and, and I'd, I think the best way to describe it is it's really, it's like, it's like ripples, you know, when a rock hits a pond and the ripples go out, the rock hits and it goes from anger to bitterness to malice and it just kind of like works its way out. And the rock itself, that's, that's when you're hurt. You know, that's what starts this. Um, you're hurt and you get angry and you get angry because something happened you don't like and you're unable to control it and all your control issues flare and just kind of goes from there. And, um, the only, like the way that you stop this from happening, like the way you stop it from working its way through, uh, is, is you, we have to learn how to forgive the hurt. Learn to forgive the hurt. And the thing about forgiveness is most of us don't really understand it. Uh, and another thing about forgiveness is like it's only something that God can do in us. Like you can't just dig in and work up forgiveness. Go to Matthew 18. I'm going to close this out here in just a second. In Matthew 18, we looked at this last week. Um, if forgiveness stops that progression, that emotional, like just, it just runs and runs and runs and runs, uh, then we need, to, we need to think correctly about forgiveness. And a lot of times we don't because we think we know what it is already. Like we don't really, like, no, I know what forgiveness is. Um, and I, I think that whether, whether we realize it or not, many of us have, have grabbed onto this idea that, that forgiveness is really like you for like forgive and forget, right? You forgive and forget. And it means like, you know, you did this and that was terrible. And you're like, yeah, I'm really sorry. And it's like, all right, let's hug it out. And then you just kind of go on. Um, and you just try to forget it, forget about it, forget about it, forget about it. And that's, that's not at all what biblical forgiveness is. That's, that's what forgiveness maybe looks like in our culture and in our world, but that's not what the Bible says forgiveness uh, is, is about. And so, we, so I talked about dealing with fears. Now we deal with a proper understanding of forgiveness. Um, I think that is the biggest misconception is forgive and forget. Um, you can just write this down if you're taking notes, but in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34, God's talking about the, uh, the new covenant and what he's going to do and how it's going to work. And in verse 34, uh, I think it's 34, uh, he says, um, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Uh, and that's, there's a lot of times when original language in the Bible doesn't really translate very well, very well to English and at first, you're like, yes, he won't remember our sins anymore. And I've heard preachers talk about this. Like, it's like it never happened, you know. And in a legal sense, yeah, it's like it never happened. But not in a memory sense, you know. Because if we, if we take that the wrong way, we're basically saying, like, yeah, God's going to just forget that that happened. And God is unable to forget things. It's kind of a part of, like, him being God, you know. 
He doesn't forget it. So how do forgiveness and remembrance actually work? It's not forgive and forget. It's forgive while remembering every detail of everything that happened. Like that, what he's really saying is like, I'm going to remember it all, but I'm, going to, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm going to treat you, um, treat you accordingly. And so I'm going to forgive that sin. I'm going to absorb that debt, which we'll look at in a second. I'm going to, that's what's going to happen, but I'm always going to remember it. And that's what makes forgiveness so baffling to us. It's like, well, how do you, how do you move on when you still can fully recall what they said or how they treated you or that they lied or that they this or this or this or whatever it may be? It's like, oh, if I could just put that out of my mind, it'd be so great. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not how it works. It's not how the brain works. It's not how God made us to work. God made us to work in such a way that we remember everything, and yet it doesn't matter. You know, it's I don't hold it against you anymore. That's what real forgiveness is. Uh, I think a lot of us just don't really think it's possible. You're like, there's just no way that I can move forward. And so it'd be nice if, like, you know, the movie Men in Black, where they had the little flash thing, and they're like. It would flash everybody like with this little light thing, and then it would like they would like forget whatever happened. Like that'd be so great if you could, if you could have that little flasher thing, and it could just like erase parts of what conversations or actions or whatever those painful things. But that's not how we're made. We're made to function a certain way. And in Matthew 18, uh, let's look at this parable again real quick. Verse 21, Peter came up to him and said, "Lord, how often will my brother?" Uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Which he was just being like Jesus about it. You know, he's being like, it's just a bunch of times. Like, don't, don't keep track, in other words. Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So Jesus, he, it's almost like he's like, okay, I know that you don't understand this, so I'm going to put it in terms that you do understand. Uh, you all understand financial debt, so let me use a, a financial uh, illustration to help you understand it. It's like when you owe somebody money and you can't pay them because it's a ridiculous amount of money. It's like a six, $6 billion or something like that would be our equivalent. Um, this outrageous amount of money that you can't pay back. Um, he throws himself at the mercy of the one he's indebted to. And, and the beauty of forgiveness is he says, tell you what, the debt is forgiven um, meaning, I'll just absorb, like, I'll take the loss. I'll absorb the financial debt. So you get to go, and you go, get, get to go live debt-free, and then I, as the, the one with the money, like, I'll take the $6 billion loss. Um, so that's, that's forgiveness. It's not saying, like, oh, it's okay, you know, no big deal, you know, like, whatever. The, the master, in this situation, makes a choice says, I choose to be the one, I'll take the hit, so that you can go free. Um, so if you have a mortgage or a car note or student loans or anything like that, it would be like, 
um, you know, the, the bank or whomever, whoever is holding that over your head, being like, tell you what, um, we, we just paid for your car. We just paid for your house. We just paid for, for college. It's okay. The debt is forgiven. It's not saying the debt never existed. They're just saying, like, we'll be the ones to pay it. Uh, how awesome that'd be, right? That'd be crazy. Um, so Jesus, he's like, okay, so that's what forgiveness looks like. So you drag that into, like, your, your conflict with, with another person. Um, when someone has hurt you, whether you articulate it this way or not, it doesn't matter, there is this emotional debt that gets created. You know? You hurt me, so you owe me something. You don't even know what it is, you know? But there's an indebtedness there. It's like, I can't believe you did that to me. And sometimes we do. We sit back and it's like, they need to, they got to pay me for this debt. And we kind of hold this emotional debt over, it's kind of just floating out there, you know. And the thing is, they can't pay it. You know? Like when someone, when someone, uh, let's, just, let's just go with, let's go with, uh, you entrusted something to someone. Let's say like you confided in them and they went and told a bunch of people. Let's, let's use that as an example. When that has happened, there's this emotional debt that is created. Like they owe you something and there's no way they can pay it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. They can't be like, oh, my bad, dog. Let's talk it out. And you're like, okay, it's all debt gone. That's not how that kind of stuff works. And there's no way that they can pay it. And so you're kind of at an impasse a little bit. You know, you're expecting something of them that they can't do, but yet you still feel like you're owed. So forgiveness would be you looking at them and saying, I'll take the hit. Like, I'll absorb the debt. But you can't do that because that's not how you are wired, and that's not, not how I'm wired. That would be forgive and forget. So what we need is something else. Like something else has to be going on interpersonally between us. And what's been the theme of the previous two weeks is that thing going on between us, that's Jesus. That's what's going on between us. So to take it into like, a, like what Jesus has done for us is that we as sinners sinned against God, created this debt that we also could not pay. And so what did God do? God said... I'll absorb it. I'll take the hit. I'll die so that you can live freely. And so interpersonally, what forgiveness looks like is this. It's like, look, I know this happened. And I know that this shouldn't have happened. And we both wish we could undo it, but we can't. And there's this kind of debt created that's kind of looming in between us. And it's a choice from both people to say, okay, Jesus has already absorbed the debt that exists between us. He's already covered that. And you make a choice to forgive. A choice to remember everything and yet not hold it against them because Jesus is not holding it against them. Jesus is not holding it against you. It's a choice to reenact the gospel together. And so a lot of that dialogue is saying, hey, let's talk about the debt that exists between us. You did this and it hurt me. Or I did this and it hurt you. And then this happened, this happened, this happened. You, you talk about it, you dialogue about it back and forth, and the whole time you're acknowledging there's this big debt. At the end of it, you both are making a choice to say, Jesus died for that. And we can live with peace between us because of his death. Now, that, that, you may not like hug and be and, and whatever in that moment, but you say, we're in a, in a process of healing. And we're gonna, well, I'll talk about that next week, but 
You start to move forward, but it begins with us thinking correctly. See, our emotions come from our brain, not from our heart. So when our emotions all stirred up, it's because we're thinking incorrectly. And so when we think correctly about fear, right? We think correctly that, yeah, fears are there, but Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory, um, power, love, self-control is greater than that. Our emotions will follow suit. When we're thinking correctly about forgiveness, understanding that it's debt that, that you could not pay and I could not pay, no matter who did what, and Jesus has taken care of it, and it's a choice to live in that kingdom, then our emotions follow suit with our minds. And so we're trying to not conform to the patterns of the world, which is hit back and hit harder. We're trying to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, which is to learn to think correctly, which means what does Jesus have to do with what's going on between us? And the answer is he has everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. It doesn't mean you jump right to a quick solution, but there's a whole process ahead that Christ wants to lead us through. And next week we'll talk about, we'll talk about that and how that looks and some of the practical stuff, but again, our landing point is always going to be, it's going to be the cross. It's, that's, that's it. Our conflict's already been resolved. We just got to catch up. And so what we've done during the 30 days is we've taken communion together as a family, as a recognition of what Christ has done among us. And so our response, before we sing one last song, our response is going to be to approach the table and recognize that Christ in us is the hope of glory, that He has paid the debt that we could not pay. And that has not only reconciled us to Him, but to each other. First to Him, then to one another. It's already done. So we just have to catch up. All right? So let me ask our uh, servers to come forward. Um, And, uh, you know, the, use the old uh, antibacterial here um, before I get things going. I know I forgot to say this, or Drew didn't say it the first week, I didn't say it last week. Uh, If you're here for the first time, you're going to see a single cup up here, but we're not going to all drink from the same one. Um, Just kind of let our germaphobic friends settle down a little bit. Um, So you'll come forward, you'll tear off a piece of the bread. And whoever's holding that bread is going to tell you, they're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And you need to hear them say that. And we're not going to have any music going because all we're really going to hear is a family shuffling around the room and over and over again, the body of Christ broken for you. You tear that off, you dip it in the, in the juice, and they're going to say, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So all we're hearing is the movements of a family and those truths over and over again. Body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you over and over and over again. And then after we've all taken it, then I'll close us in prayer and we'll sing a song and then we'll go. So you just begin to prepare your heart and to think about that debt as I get us uh, set up down here.